0: Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole and naflik We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole.
1: Hi, this is Cole. It has been super rainy where I live in Wisconsin. Uh, It rained pretty much the entire past weekend. And my kids, who are home every day these days, have been going a little stir-crazy, but also figuring out some new indoor activities to entertain themselves. My oldest, Avery, has been saving his money. He has his eyes set on a Lego set that costs $40. Now, from my perspective, this is a tremendous amount of money for a seven-year-old, and I didn't think there was any way he had this much. But he's been saving the dollars that grandma and grandpa sometimes include in holiday cards, the coins that he finds or that are brought to him by the tooth fairy and such. So this past weekend, he decided that to pass some time and hopefully prove me wrong, he'd count his money. Half an hour and an emptied piggy bank later, I was called to his room where he'd arranged piles of similar coins and bills. He'd already gone through the process of organizing his coins into sections of a dollar apiece, and we spent some time together double counting, putting a dollar value to each type, writing the various amounts on post-it notes, and finally adding it all together. At the end of this process, we had counted $46.35. Avery was ecstatic. He was less thrilled, however, when a quick Google search revealed he'd been working off of bad data. The Lego set he wanted actually cost $69.99. So as we sat in front of my computer, sadness sweeping across his face, I decided to try to use it as a teaching moment. We talked about what he wanted and was willing to do, what I wanted and would be receptive to, and then I had him suggest a couple of options that might work for both of us. At the end of that process, he had determined that he'd use part of his savings to purchase a small Lego set that day and put the rest of the funds back in the bank, keep saving for that ultimate set. Stepping back, when we're trying to get someone to do something, it's helpful to first know what they value so we know what they'll go for. And if we can't make it work for them, it's not going to work. We can't simply demand, we have to influence. And there's a lot more nuance involved in this. That is what we're going to focus on today. The case where we need to convince those around us, influencing them to change their mind or modify their way of doing things. There's not a single simple way to do this, so we'll discuss various strategies to consider and practice in our efforts to influence change. Now, when it comes to influencing change, in workshops and conversations I have, this typically comes up in one of a couple of veins. First off is how to convince someone the value of effective data storytelling. So uh, oftentimes this is needing to convince management or senior leadership to support the amount of time it takes or invest in specialized skills. Uh, So just getting people to understand that uh, there's a nuance here and that time and effort are associated with it. Another arena where influencing comes up is when you want to change how people do something. right? Whether it's your colleagues around you who you want to convince that they should be maybe visualizing data differently or taking different steps in their processes, or if it's audience or stakeholders that you want to convince that they should be looking at data differently or receptive to views that might look different than they have in the past. So we're to talk through each of these scenarios and some related thoughts with each. So let's start off with that value piece, when we need to convince someone who may be resistant for whatever reason, that there's value in spending time and investing in skills when it comes to communicating data effectively and often this takes the tone of you know i'm bought in but how do i help influence senior leadership who wants to keep doing things the way they are and so i'll come back to one of the points that i made in the anecdote with avery up front which is first and foremost you have to make it work for them Right for your management, for your leadership, for the people who you're trying to influence, because it's by solving their needs that you'll actually gain leeway to be able to do more or to get the support that you need. Oftentimes that support takes a couple of different points of focus, Uh, time and investment in skills. So when it comes to time, and trying to get more time to uh, do this part of the process this has always been interesting to me right because if we think of the typical analytical process it has all these different steps right you start off with a question or a hypothesis then you gather the data you clean the data you analyze the data and at that point we're often out of time so we throw it in a graph and we're done when that graph is the only part of the entire process that your audience sees. But it takes time to make a good graph it takes even more time to weave that graph into a data-driven narrative so if you're finding yourself constrained for time and wanting to go to your manager and say i need more time for this i think the first thing to do is look at the overall process and see where can you gain efficiencies elsewhere so that you have more time for this piece Then when it comes to going back to your management, you still need to make your approach fit what they need. that means if there's a time constraint, you wanna figure out what can you do given that constraint. Right? Is this a quick hit thing and it's quick and dirty and that's going to be okay in terms of maybe you can prioritize a couple of things, You know, putting words around the graph so it makes sense, making sure your axes are labeled, simple things that don't take a lot of time that still have benefit when it comes to getting your message across. Actually, there's an exercise in Let's Practice that's framed exactly like this of where you've got varying time constraints. Exercise 7.5, and I think there are some others probably that do something similar, but there's a scenario posed, some data that's visualized. Uh, This is a diabetes case one that Elizabeth on the team did. And in the exercise, one of the scenarios is all right, by the end of the day, you owe an update. What are some quick things you can do that don't take a lot of time that are going to improve the current view? And now let's consider another scenario uh, where you've got no time constraint, right? Or you've got a week or multiple weeks to be able to turn something around. What would you do if you weren't constrained for time? What would that look like? What sort of strategies would you employ? And this can be a useful thought exercise to do in general with any project that you're faced with of what would be the quick things that I would do if I had, say, 10 minutes to visualize the data and communicate it. Now, how would that change if I had more time? What if I had a day, right? I have 24 hours to be able to do something. How much time would I spend? How much time should I spend? How do I fit that in with the other things I have going on? And now let's extend that even further. What if I have a week or more? What does that mean that I would do in terms of how I would invest my time for making the communication good? And what you can do then is when you do have more time to be able to invest in how you communicate your data and the materials that you put together in order to do that, particularly when those situations are successful, then those become evidence that you can use, right? Coming back to this idea of influencing leadership of the value of spending time here. When things go well and you're able to spend more time, you can point to those successes as evidence of the need to be able to do that more frequently or to prioritize that in cases where it's something really important that you are communicating. So there's a little thought on time, right? Getting support for time, making the most of the time that you have when it comes to doing some of these things. A lot of times when we're trying to influence, it's to get support for investing in skill development as well. And so my number one tip when it comes to developing skills, whether it's how you visualize data, how you're communicating with data, is look for ways to practice on the job. That's how we're going to get good at this uh, in the first place, right? Is figuring out how to change habits, how to uh, work strategic ways of communicating into our day-to-day. And actually, the Storytelling with Data community, the exercises that are there are aimed at helping you do this, where you can take 10 or 15 minutes of your day and spend them really focusing on a specific skill that will then have applications in your day-to-day work. So thinking about practicing in small ways, right? If it's a new tool you want to use, then make it a goal this week to make a graph in that new tool. And uh, over time, you can build in more of that. If it's something specific that you think you need in terms of resources, right, a book or a training that you want to attend, or maybe it's you want everybody on the team to have a book or support for investing in a workshop for the team, then turn it around and think about from the decision maker's perspective, what do they value? And what does getting this resource, how does it help them uh, get what they value? And You want to be specific on what's going to improve as a result of this. And actually, the big idea worksheet, which is something that we commonly work through in our workshops, can be an excellent thing to do in a case like this as well. So oftentimes, we'll talk about the big idea as something you want to articulate when it's a specific point you're making to an audience. And the big idea has these three components. It uh, articulates your point of view, conveys what's at stake, and it's a single and complete sentence but the big idea worksheet can be a tremendous thing to put yourself through uh, from an exercise standpoint anytime you uh, anticipate you're going to be facing uh, resistance of work through the big idea worksheet with that person or the people uh, who you're expecting the resistance to come from in mind because it forces you to step back from yourself and from your needs, and really think about things from the standpoint of the person you're trying to influence, right? What do they care about? What is at stake for them, both the positives, the benefits, if they are agreeable to the thing that you want to make happen, as well as the risks, right? What's going to go wrong if that thing doesn't happen? Uh, I'll, I'll link to the big idea worksheet in the show notes in case it's something that you would find useful. Again. For me, it's a nice way of being able to step outside of ourselves and really think about things from the point of view of the person to whom we're communicating. So, If you're finding you have a resistant senior leader who you need buy-in from in order to be able to invest in your own skills or the skills for your team, thinking through what motivates them, what drives them, what benefit there will be to them can be useful. And also just understanding what's constraining them or what's causing the resistance. Is it lack of budget? Is it because they don't think there's value in having people spend the time or they're not sure what the output will be from it? because the more you can do to understand what's driving the resistance you face, the more directly you can appeal to those things and have better conversations uh, that get people on the same page, right? It's coming back to this idea of what's valued, what's at stake, and how you make those things match or overlap, right, where your needs overlap with the needs of the person with whom you're facing resistance. And then being really specific when it comes to the the change that's going to happen as a result of investing in the skill set just one final thought on this piece which is don't let a lack of support or perceived lack of support stop you right find ways to get what you need given the constraints with which you're faced. And oftentimes that means we get more creative about how we do that. Let's shift next to uh, another sort of influencing or another scenario in which to influence. And that is when you wanna try to convince people around you that they should do things differently than they've been doing. Uh, typically, this will be either colleagues, co-workers, or maybe your audience or stakeholders. So let's actually start with the audience stakeholder piece. Uh, when you think that you want to change the way that you've been showing data and you are met with resistance, right? You're feeling like people, uh, when you challenge uh, the way they've been doing things or what they're used to, the status quo... Sometimes it makes people hold on tighter. Uh, and even the the words that are used when questions come up in this space, right? I'm battling my audience or they're attached uh, and I think they should do something different. Uh, it creates this very... Uh, what, me versus them, us versus them sort of scenario. And when you're trying to influence, that's not the scenario that you want to be in. The best way to influence is when you can get everyone united on the same side of something. And so that means working together with your audience as opposed to, uh, in opposition (laughs) to them. And so one strategy to apply that will help facilitate this is augment, don't replace, which means you can start with what they're familiar with, what they already know. You don't take anything away, but you add to it in ways that are going to create value. This can take a couple of different forms. If it's data that you're showing, uh, let's say in a meeting, you can start with the view that people are familiar with and then use that as your jumping off point to transition into a different view of the data. You just want to be sure as you do so that you're talking people through the nuances and sometimes it can be useful to pick a specific point right, of uh, focus on this, which you then when you go to the new view, you can talk about how that Same data point is reflected in the new view. And then you want to be able to also talk about what the new view enables you to see or do that's different from what you could do before. What happens is, as you ground the data in what's familiar and transition people to this new view, you can sometimes over time then wean their dependence off of the old view uh, because that new view then becomes the routine going forward. Another way to do this sort of augment, not replace, is anytime you've got a regular report or a dashboard that you share regularly, any sort of you know, monthly, quarterly sort of metrics, which is Don't change anything about how you're showing those, right? Because those are things that people often build attachment to over time, where a certain person may have the certain page of the report that they're always referring to because it shows things exactly like they want. And maybe you've even tried to change it before and been met with resistance. Leave that stuff the same. Uh, But add a page or two on top of it that points out the interesting or important things this time around. can be a way of saying to your audience, folks, all the data's there, right? We can go through it with you to your heart's content, but we've already taken the time to do that. And here, up front, applying good uh, communicating with data practices are the things you need to pay attention to this time. And that could be a couple pages on top of the report. It could be in the email that goes out that says the report's been updated. Uh, And really coming back to some of the things that we talked about earlier when we were talking about senior leadership, if you're met with resistance, understanding why, right? What are your stakeholders' views and their constraints? And actually, quick anecdote, Uh, Alex was doing office hours earlier this week. And afterwards, I was chatting with her and she said to me, I think that might have been a failure because I sent the the, the woman who came to the office hours, I sent her away with no answers and way more questions than she came in with. Uh, But I actually think that's probably the sign of success, right? When we think about teaching through the Socratic method of asking questions so that people are thinking about the right sorts of components and then coming up with decisions that work in light of their needs and their constraints. But in this case, the woman had come in. And she had some really specific questions on color and how she should be using color in this uh, monthly report that she was working on. And it turned out over the course of conversation that Alex redirected the questions to not be about color, because it seemed like after talking for a bit, the scenario may have been someone gathering evidence to be able to go to their manager and say, see, I told you it should be this way, uh, which is not a great way to influence. Uh, but Alex sent her away with many more questions about uh, how to understand why people were resisting but beyond that what the point was in the first place of what they were trying to show what sort of decisions they were going to be making uh, you know what words does that mean we put around the data Uh, how does it mean that it influences where or how we communicate these sorts of things right in person versus something that's being sent around and all of these other questions that were wrapped up in what sounded like a simple request of, you know, tell me how to use color that ended up being much more nuanced. Uh, Because when we're trying to influence, it is a very nuanced thing. And I think often we go into that scenario only with our needs and desires in mind and not pausing to reflect on the people on the other side of that and what their needs and desires on and how we try to make all of that work together. So coming back to this idea of trying to get your stakeholders and you united on the same side, something else you can do is give options. Get your stakeholders involved in the process of how to show the data. Uh, If there's been a view that's been used historically, have that be one of three options or five options that you put forth and talk about the pros and cons or what you can more or less easily see with some of the different views of the data. Um, Because when you can get people involved, get them talking, one, you get to learn more about them. You also may find that you get talked out of things that you thought you held dear. Uh, I've had more than one, uh, actually many, instances of this where i go into a conversation thinking i know how it should be but after taking the time to listen to other viewpoints it actually changes my mind so you want to be open to that because i think we we get attached to the views of the data that we've spent time creating or that we think might be quote unquote the right way to show the data without always taking the time to understand why hasn't it been that way in the past, Usually there are constraints or uh, conversations, decisions that have gone into making things the way they are. So getting a good understanding of why things are the way they are and then approaching change thoughtfully in light of those things uh, can be really important. Another strategy can be to get an influential supporter or advocate right sometimes there's someone else sitting around the table who might be able to influence others on your behalf or who may be bought in and able to influence we'd use this strategy at google a lot of times when i was working on the people analytics team there Often resistance when we wanted to roll out things would come from uh, engineers. Uh, not always, but uh, they can be uh, a gnarly bunch sometimes. And what we found over time was if you can get some influential engineers on your side and involved in the process, then they can help influence those around them in ways that, you know, us coming from HR that, that was never going to work. Uh, and so Having someone who other people will listen to who may uh, advocate on your behalf can be useful. And I think not fighting every time. Right? If they're and this, I see this happen a lot, particularly when people go into a new job or a new team where they want to change everything. Uh, and in some cases, maybe they've been brought in with the idea that they will be changing everything, which is a hard thing because people grow attached to the way that they do things. And so you don't wanna fight everybody on everything. That's a way to get a not great reputation really fast. And so even if you think everything around you should change, And actually, especially if you think everything around you should change, pause and do more listening than you do talking and figure out which fights are worth fighting. Not every fight, right? Be smart and look for opportunities where you will be successful. Because what then happens, and particularly if you do this out in low risk places First, uh, in terms of if you think there's something that should be changed or should be done differently, do that in low risk places first. And then those successes that you can have there can build upon each other so that you are both able to uh, establish credibility in those around you, maybe boost your own confidence uh, as well as the confidence of others in your abilities to be able to drive bigger change if that's what's needed over time. I think this is a good point to pause briefly for a quick break.
0: Have you joined the Storytelling with Data community? It's your online destination for developing and honing your data storytelling skills. Participate in monthly challenges and practice with hands-on exercises. Get feedback or engage in the numerous discussions. Speaking of which, we've just started a special discussion for our podcast listeners, inviting you to share your favorite episodes. If you're new to the community, sign up at community.storytellingwithdata.com slash sign up and enter the group code podcast. If you'd like even more support, consider going premium and get access to regular data storytelling office hours with virtual real-time feedback from the data storytelling team. You'll also have exclusive access to our growing library of videos featuring lessons ranging from short how-tos to more in-depth strategies and live events. Speaking of which, our next live event is coming up on May 28th, 2020. Tune in to watch Cole illustrate the power of story, drawing inspiration from one of her favorites for communicating with data in a business setting. Learn more at community.storytellingwithdata.com premium. That's community.storytellingwithdata.com premium.
1: All right. Before the break, we talked about the value of effective data storytelling, how we can convince others of the value using strategies to get more time or support for time, support for uh, investing in skills. Talked about some strategies for convincing stakeholders when you want to change the way that they are looking at things. Now let's talk about the case where you have teammates who you want to convince that they should be doing things differently when it comes to how they visualize and communicate with data. And I think what we'll talk about here is going to apply both in the case where you're a manager, right, in a formal capacity, uh, and also the case where you're an individual contributor trying to influence the people around you without any direct reporting lines to rely on to make that happen. And so my number one piece of advice here is to lead by example. So if you can put good practices into place in your own work, good work gets attention. And so over time, people will gravitate towards that if it's working and emulate that. This is another case where if you think your team should do things differently, but they are resistant, understanding what's driving that, Finding an influential supporter to help uh, spread the message can be useful. If you're in a formal manager capacity or able to influence in that way, have iterating and getting feedback be part of the process every time you are communicating with data. And if you're not in a formal place where you're able to dictate that, then you can model that behavior yourself ask others for feedback when you do things and incorporate that feedback can be a nice way of starting to um, have that feedback cycle as part of a team and form those habits that then more people can take advantage of over time. It's basically illustrating the behavior that you want others to undertake and if it's working, right? If the things that you're doing are having good results, then people will adopt those sorts of behaviors over time. If the things that you're doing aren't having good results, then you're going to have a harder time pushing this. And then you want to really be thoughtful and reflective of maybe why some things aren't working. And I feel a little like a broken record here because this is coming up in different ways over the course of this, but I really think this is one of the most important things. When you're met with resistance, don't take it at face value. Work to understand why right? Why does someone not want to do things in the way that you think they should? And brute force doesn't work here, right? Of simply telling someone, well, I went to this workshop or I read this book and I learned you should do it like this is not a way to influence and make friends. And actually, this brings up another recent office hour conversation. Uh, this one was with Mike, uh, who had someone attend a recent office hour. And he shared the anecdote with me afterwards and said, I totally relate to this scenario. I've been guilty of this. And he told it to me and I said the same thing. I've been guilty of this too, which is this idea of... Uh, the people around me just don't get it, right? They're they're not looking at things the right way, and that's why they uh, aren't receptive to the, the way I think we should show the data or the way I think we should communicate or the way we should go through this process. Uh, I can think back to a specific scenario when I was working in banking, and I've shared this before, but I was working in fraud management, and fraud management has these different... Um, different things you can do to contain it, right? You can mitigate, detect, prosecute, deter. And so there's six stages, I think, of the fraud management life cycle. And I thought that a spider graph, right? A radar chart would be the perfect way to show this data and spend a ton of time crafting it, putting numbers at things, putting targets on things, and then even more time trying to explain to my audience why they should embrace this approach of looking at the data. And it was an embarrassingly long amount of time of me trying to force this graph on them before I realized, wow, this isn't working. And it's not them, it's me. Right. That when I stepped back and thought about what we were trying to show with the data, actually unraveling the spider graph and turning it into a simple bar chart made the thing that we needed to be able to see in the data much easier to see. And so anytime you're being faced with, with resistance, and particularly if it's coming from multiple people, don't assume it's them. Take a step back and look at what you're doing and try to understand from their point of view where there might be snags or hitches or things that aren't uh, maybe as straightforward as you think they are because you're closer to the data or you've been looking at it this way for so long that you've grown attached. And that's where getting feedback from someone else can be useful. Someone who's less close to the data, maybe someone who has no vested interest so that you feel confident that it's an unbiased point of view that you're getting uh, can be helpful in understanding. Cause I think sometimes when we're trying to push something that we think is the right way to do things, we've gotten too wrapped up in ourselves and our data to be able to take a step back and look at things with fresh eyes. So I think in summing up on influencing teammates, and those around you, right? It's a lot of the things that we've talked about over the course of the episode. Leading by example with your good work, working to understand if you're facing resistance, where that's coming from and why that is, and really being thoughtful in self-reflection and what you might do in different ways that'll help you get the outcome that you need. So a couple of final thoughts to sum things up. This should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, don't be pushy, whiny, or condescending when you're not getting things to go the way that you want. Uh, it's not a way to make friends or influence. Also, don't let a lack of support impact the quality of your output. Rather, aim to lead with your great work that first and foremost solves your audience's needs. Whether that audience is your management, stakeholders, or colleagues, this is how you'll influence change. Let's shift now to some listener Q&A. Miriam asks, how can you show binary data over time? So this is a general question, right? When I'm thinking binary data, I'm assuming this means either something is happening or it is not. And my mind goes immediately, and I'm sure there are other ways to look at this, but my mind goes first and foremost to a heat map in this case, where it's simply the cell is colored if the thing happens or it's blank if the thing didn't happen. So, you can imagine how you could make many small squares of this over time. And you could start linearly, where let's say it's a daily thing that we're tracking, right? Either this thing happened on this day or it didn't. Right? Let's say it rained. Either it rained on this day or it didn't. Uh, looking out my window, it's finally sunny here today. Hooray. Uh, where we could start at day zero, day one, day two, day three, and so forth linearly. And then you can think about how you might organize that heat map in different ways to potentially be able to see different things. So if I'm looking at daily data, I might put days of the week across the top and then have weeks going downwards, week one, week two, week three. So this would be a good way to see if there's anything interesting happening over the course of a week, right? Sometimes there's different behavior on weekends or certain days of the week or certain times of the day, depending on what we're tracking and with what granularity, then you could imagine how you might organize that daily and then weekly data by month. Um, as you go forward over time, eventually you'd be able to aggregate where you could say the percent of time that the binary thing happened in a given week week or on, uh, over the course of a given month. And then you'd be able to track that metric over time as a line graph. Uh, so coming back to the idea of what you're trying to show, who you're trying to show it to, and then allowing yourself to look at different views to try to figure out where insight will come from or what question you're trying to answer and what's going to do a good job of that. But coming back, I'd say first thing I would try is a heat map and try organizing that in different ways to see whether and what insights may come from that. Phil asks a straightforward question, Cole, why don't you use grid lines in your graphs? So I don't use grid lines. I get rid of them almost always. And for me, grid lines compete with the data. And if you imagine a graph, that especially a line graph, so let's imagine a line graph, and imagine now that that line graph has horizontal lines going across it at regular intervals. If you just now imagine those lines disappearing, it means our data stands out more. And my argument is typically if the specific values are important, right? if you were going to want to take your finger and trace it across the grid line to get over to the value on the axis, rather than do that, we want to think about potentially labeling the data directly. So I don't have to do that work to figure out what the value is, or maybe label data sparingly uh, to alleviate that sort of work. And so I'll typically get rid of the grid lines altogether. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to, uh, you just want to make sure that the grid lines aren't competing visually with your data. So if you are preserving grid lines, make them thin, make them gray, push them to the background. One thing I've seen, by the way, actually a couple of times recently, and this can work particularly well if you've got a really wide graph for whatever reason, is to have your axis. uh, Sometimes it can make sense to repeat it. So have your y-axis on the left-hand side of the graph and on the right-hand side of the graph in order to be able to more easily see, and again, particularly if it's spread out wide, so that the uh, points on the right are pretty far from the axis on the left, and you want to get a sense of those values to repeat the axis again on the right-hand side. Now, there are certainly cases where that could be confused with it being a secondary y-axis, and so you'd want to take that into account uh, or think about whether labeling the data directly could work. All right. Next, I want to repose a question that actually came up during a chat, a Zoom conversation that I was having that John Schwabish organized last week, and I'll try to find the link to that uh, recording and put in the show notes as long as all of the other resources that I've mentioned over the course of the show. But there, Wesley asked for guidance building a portfolio of work when you're interested in moving into a data visualization heavy role and how to best convince prospective employers of your skills. So first off, I think that's a great idea, right? To be able to show evidence of the type of work that you can do to prospective employers. I think back to Google, we used to have people actually do work similar to what they'd be doing, where I'd have people graphing data and communicating it in different scenarios to get a sense of their skills and what that looked like, right? what sort of assumptions they would make or questions they would ask, and those sorts of things. And so to the extent that you can create things that will be reflective of, uh, both the, what you're applying for, but then also what you want to be doing, right? So as you build a portfolio of work, you want to make it match the type of work that you want to do. And I would say that's in terms of the type of data that you're showing doesn't necessarily have to be the same subject, but data that has things in common with the type of data that you want to be showing the tools that you want to be using. Cause I think it's Easy to get intimidated by some of the sexy data visualizations that we see, particularly online and in social media, where it feels like if we're creating a portfolio of work, that it has to be flashy and fancy, which is not typically the case, We wanna think about what sort of roles are you applying for? Are they business roles where, you know, sure, a sexy infographic might be great, but it's not what you're going to be doing in your day-to-day. Day-to-day is going to be PowerPoint presentations to other people in the company. And if so, then thinking about how you can align what you create outside of work uh, to reflect the sort of things that you wanna be doing in your job and I'll say one place that you can go for this is the storytelling with data community. We do a monthly challenge that can be an excellent way to each month go grab some data of interest and maybe look at something a slightly different way. Try a new tool or a new view that over time can build a portfolio of visualizations that you've created, uh, which you can actually do in your gallery in the Storytelling with Data community where you can add uh, visuals that you've used in the challenge or you can add visuals you've created in your own day-to-day and the exercises that i mentioned there earlier can be a great place to create some graphs as well where there you don't have to chase after your data it's all provided in the context and scenario where you can approach things in a sensible manner uh, that could be useful for prospective employers sam writes i've been reading your books and working to incorporate more storytelling into how i communicate with data Awesome. How should I approach this when it's a nuanced narrative and different audiences will care more or less about various storylines within it? This is a great question. So first off, Sam, I love hearing that you're using the books and playing with some of the concepts there. So when we teach story, we typically talk about the narrative arc, where you start off. There's a plot, uh, tension is introduced. This tension builds in the form of a rising action. It reaches a point of climax. There's a falling action, a resolution. Or sometimes you might think of this in uh, a pyramid shape, right? Freytag's pyramid is a another way to look at the dramatic structure where it's basically the same pieces that I just listed off. These are both simplified views though, right? And I think of this as like the meta story, the 30,000 foot view of what happened. But in the real story, it's not a simple up and down, rather it's this sort of jagged mountain, if we picture plotting the tension, where there are ups and downs and nuances happening the whole time. And different audiences, if we think of all of those uh, peaks along a jagged mountain as different points of tension or conflict or interesting things that are going on or that we discovered as part of our analysis, different audiences may care about a different subset of those peaks. And so choosing the peaks that are going to be relevant or the storyline, as you framed it, Sam, that's going to be relevant for the specific audience can be really useful. And this can sometimes mean that if we have very different audiences of very different needs, that we actually communicate to them differently so that we can use the specific combination of peaks that is going to work for them. I'm going to explore this idea of Freytox pyramid and the jagged mountain further in our upcoming live event on May 28th. Uh, That's in the community. It's open to premium members. You can learn more at community.storytellingwithdata.com slash live-events. If you aren't already a premium member, you can upgrade there too. These are all great questions. If you have questions for me, you can email askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Even better place to put them is in the Storytelling with Data community. First do a quick search with your keywords to see what resources are already available. And if you don't find what you need, I encourage you to start a new conversation with your question, where you can get input from the storytelling with data team and the broader community. You can do that at community.storytellingwithdata.com conversations. Stay tuned for our next episode of the Storytelling with Data podcast, where I will be chatting with my friend, Andy Cotgrieve, about presenting virtually. Speaking of the podcast, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. With that, be sure to follow at Story with Data on Twitter and Instagram. Also check out all the great resources at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.